Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I am Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with the Central Oregon's most inspiring reporter, Laura Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. Our guest today is John Hummel, Deschutes County District Attorney. He has been serving as District Attorney since he was first elected in 2014. Before being elected, he was a state and federal policy director for the Oregon Primary Care Association, a nonprofit dedicated to providing quality care to some of Oregon's most vulnerable and low-income residents. For two and a half years, he lived in Africa, serving as the Liberia Africa Country Representative for the Carter Center, the former President's Peace and Health Organization. He has worked both as a public defender and for private law firms, taught at the university level, served on the Ben City Council for six years uh, until 2007, and has a law degree from the University of Arkansas and master's in public policy from Johns Hopkins. John, thanks for joining us. Uh, happy to be here, Aaron. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, John, what inspired you to pursue your career in law and politics? You've had a serpentine course, and uh, uh, where, where does it start? Well, I mean, I, I love the law and I love politics, so there's probably not much better job to be than a district attorney since uh, I, I get to practice law and, and be a, a local leader. I, um, when I moved to Bend in 95, I started as a public defender and lived here about, oh gosh, five, four or five years when people in the community started encouraging me to run for city council, which uh, I hadn't been thinking I'd run for city council being so new to a town, but uh, there were issues in Bend that I thought should be addressed, and I figured, uh, why not me? So uh, so I ran that first race. I lost that first race, but I was, <laughs> I was not deterred, and so and I eventually won and served two terms on the council, but I was also practicing law, and I, and I had this love for politics and, and local governance and, and a love for the law, and I've kind of always, those have followed me throughout my career, and so I've, uh, I think I'm in the ideal job right now for me. John, at the time when you were serving on city council, I mean, Bend was uh, in the middle of a pretty big transition and its, and its development. It was, development was just starting to, it was starting to occur to everybody that, hey, Bend is gonna be pretty big, pretty hot. And, um, and it was right at that moment after your second term that you decided to pack it all in and head in a different course, what, uh, what motivated you for the change? Well, I felt that, you know, we had done good things at the city. I mean, we had, uh, we were, uh, it, I was there when it was a transition from a, a small town to a, a small city. And now we're looking at the transition from a small city to a mid-sized city. But uh, I was real proud of uh, bringing a, a transit system to Bend. I mean, that was a wacky, radical, nutty idea to have, a, you know, a transit, a bus system in little old, small town of Bend. But, you know, my colleagues and I thought that was important because, you know, we're driven by, you know, the service workers in this community and the idea that, you know, we want to, um, you know, reap the benefits of having, uh, you know, someone service our beer, but, you know, that person's going to, we're not going to help them get to their job or, or get to their, you know, kids' school activities. And so that was big. And we worked on affordable housing and other issues, but, you know, I had a passion inside you know, my heart to live and work internationally. I've always thought that, you know, there's more to the world than just Bend, Oregon. This is a pretty great part of the world, right? But I've always kind of been concerned about what's happening, you know, in, in Deschutes County, but also outside of Deschutes County. So I thought, you know, before I 
get married, have a kid, settle down. If I have that fire in the belly, it was, uh, it was the time to strike. So that's why I did it then. We were uh, debating whether to touch on transit issues, given all the other questions we have. But but since you brought it up, we we did a podcast with Tammy Bainey, and we were talking. Uh, and given my uh, knowledge of the history of Ben's uh, antipathy towards transit, uh, d- how do you? I mean, back then it was uh, when we became a city, it was mandated that some form of transit come, but people still dragged their feet. It really was you and and the group of counselors that came in with you that pushed transit. To this day, it's still somewhat of a bugaboo. How do you how do you move perception on something like transit? Yeah, you know what I've always done, and, and we we had some success back then. Is uh, how do you talk about it and make it relevant to people in our community? I mean, there are many reasons that you might want transit, you know, to reduce traffic on the roads. You know, it's, it's good for the environment. It also helps, you know, people of, uh, you know, low income get around it and people who are a mobility challenge. You know, I've chosen not, I mean, giving away my secrets here, I've chosen not to uh, focus on the kind of the green side, the environmental side. That's kind of, a, that divides, you know, a community that was, you know, still has kind of our timber roots in our, in our core, right? And so regardless of whether it may help the environment, I think, you know, Deschutes County and Ben specifically is a, is a, you know, a loving, caring community. We want to help our neighbors. If we know that people in our community are struggling to get around either, you know, seniors who might be mobility challenged or people of low income who are working multiple jobs and can't afford a car. If you can talk, uh, that can be what you lead with on this. I think you can get uh, people to support it. John, at the time that you took over, so after you came back from Africa and, um, and then moved back to Ben and were in your position, you started looking at uh, eventually becoming the DA. And it was pretty tumultuous time at the DA here uh, when you took over that office and won your election against Flaherty. How do you, what was your process for restoring morale? How does someone come into that environment with lawyers and everything was extremely litigious at the time? Uh, and, and what did you learn about leadership at that time? Well, I'll tell you that you're absolutely right, Aaron. It was, uh, it, there is some, you know, residual trauma in this office. So they had gone through, you know, my, my colleagues now had gone through two years of, uh, of hell and, and had all the, uh, all of that, um, out in the public, you know, the media was pretty active in covering the DA's office back then. And, you know, what I, what, and, and then I come in and I inherit everyone who's here. And I also had a different, you know, philosophy than my predecessor and perhaps a different philosophy than a lot of the people who were working in the office. You know, I was interested in criminal justice reform. But what I realized is I cannot come in with a fundamental change in prosecution strategy when we still have, uh, when we had the nuts and bolts problems in this office of no policies, no procedures, you know, still a lot of uh, a carryover from the litigation side. So I wanted to build uh, the trust of the people in my office. Let me just rebuild the office uh, from the bottom up. Um, let's get some good policies and procedures. I wanted everyone to know they weren't going to be fired. And, and that was key. I, I committed to not terminating anyone. I committed in the campaign to that because I sensed that people would, um, you know, need that comfort if I won. And so I took a, a year or two, I think, to just focus on the nuts and bolts of running a DA office, not trying to bring in criminal justice, you know, reform issues. I felt I had to 
earn the trust of my team before it could kind of shift, you know, how we look at criminal justice matters. So I think that was the key. And, and I think uh, to, uh, you know, a large degree, I, I was successful in that. Yeah, when, when we're talking about criminal justice reform and the trajectory, how, how long do you feel like it took you to get from human resource issues to what you actually wanted to do with the department? Well, you know, it, it, in retrospect, I took a little too long. I think it probably took about, I'd say, three, about three years until I felt, you know, comfortable doing that. I should have pushed a little earlier because I tell you what, I, um, the reason I, I was slow to, well, I talked about the reason I didn't do it in year one, but the reason I didn't do it in year two, uh, I'll, I'll be candid, I didn't, I, I feared that my office wasn't ready for it. And if yeah. I did it, there'd be pushback and then we'd fall apart again and we go back to the, where, you know, the DA's office had been before I started. And, um, you know, and found out that, you know, my office was uh, more ready for this than I gave them uh, credit for. So I should have started early, but it took me about three years. Uh, well, hindsight's always twenty twenty. You, right. you, you never know. So, um, well, one of the things I'm always fascinated by is, you know, we're coming into an election season and, and every election season, it's, it's very easy for someone to grab that platform of um, let's get tough on crime. It, it's, it's now's the time to get tough on crime. And, um, you know, and it's, and it's worked. Voters have responded to those platforms and people come along and might have a little bit of a bias towards prevention or want to institute policies around mental health or, or drug abuse. And you're hitting a real electoral wall. How do you, you've been successful in, in, I think, instituting some programs that are really changing that. But Again, I'm fascinated by it. How do you turn that um, from, you know, a three strikes mentality to something that's actually going to benefit um, at-risk people? Yeah, it's a fascinating question, and we, we don't have enough time to do it justice. But, I mean, the short version is that I was known in the community, and I think that helped. I, w I didn't come from nowhere. I had been an elected leader in the community before. Hopefully, I built up some goodwill. But two, I mean, how I meant, messaged it and how I continue to message it, because I believe this, it's not change for change's sake. It's not me trying to do something that, you know, I cooked up at some, you know, socialist or, you know, retreat I went to. You know, we started out by saying, hey, how's, how is the status quo working for us? Let's yeah, look yeah. at our recidivism rates, because if we're doing a darn good job, there's no need to change it. And if we're doing a poor job, then I, I, I thought that I could, you know, talk to, you know, my uh, partners in the community and say, hey, um, this isn't a philosophical thing. How we're doing things isn't working. So let's try something new. I've got an idea. Let's try my way. And then let's look at the data. If, if my way doesn't work, let's try a third way. And let's keep trying new ways until we get to the results that our community wants. And so that, that's why we started with the drug offenses, because the recidivism rates were abysmal so i could get some buy on that hey what we're doing ain't working right right so with that um you started a program to shoot safe can you talk a little bit more about that and and what you learned as a group about the county yeah and so we're going back to the beginning here now before i even came up with the kind of interventions that i wanted to do to make our community as safe as possible 
I wanted to get uh, you know feedback from our community about you know what they wanted. So I recruited um, you know subject matter experts, definitely people from law enforcement, uh, but I also wanted people from you know education and the medical community and retired people and, and people from Lapine and people from Redmond. So I wanted geographic diversity. I got the business community involved. I tried to get as many sectors and age groups and geographic areas of the county as possible. And at our first meeting, I think we had about 35 folks, I said, uh, what can we do to make uh, Deschutes County as safe as possible? And man, we had about four meetings where it was so cool. I wish we recorded this because we had all these ideas up on charts, like uh, increase uh, 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 people reading at grade level by uh, third grade, the percentage of kids who read at grade level by third grade, which is such a great predictor of future success. Let's increase the high school graduation rate. Oregon has an abysmal high school graduation rate. Let's lower the poverty rate. We had about 20 ideas up there over four weeks, four meetings, and they were all exciting and they got the juices flowing. And finally, I had to say to all these ideas, yes, 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 yes. But um, probably not realistic for a district attorney's office <laughs> to achieve that. So let's try to lower it down and try to find something that a, a relatively small DA's office could implement. And then uh, we said, well, let's focus on, let's see what the group came up with. Let's uh, focus on reducing recidivism. You know, people commit a crime, that's a, that's a known number of people. And let's work on lowering the recidivism rate. Well, we dug into that, and that was still too many people. So we said, let's find the crimes that are happening a lot and have a high recidivism rate and focus on them. And then when we dug into it, that's when we teased out drug crimes were happening a lot. We had a lot of drug arrests and the recidivism rate was high. And then we also saw that people who were charged with drug offenses were also committing theft offenses. So we thought we might get a twofer if we uh, did that. So that was a many, about eight months of work. And then we said, okay, we're gonna focus on uh, identifying a program to reduce the recidivism rate for drug crimes. And then they're like, okay, Hummel, and that, now it's on you. This is what our group did. You come up with the program, Hummel. And, and I did that with, with the help of others. And how, how's the data, what's the data showing now? You know, the data is uh, showing great. We've reduced recidivism by 34%. Oregon recidivism rate is, Deschutes County's recidivism rate for drug offenses was 53%. That's traditional criminal justice system, sending them into court and doing jail. Uh, our program has a recidivism rate of 35%. So that's a 34% uh, reduction rate in recidivism. So tell us about the programs. Yeah. Um, Goldilocks and Clean Slate. And I love the I love the program, right? And so Goldilocks says it's our cutesy a name. A lot of the cops tease me about it. Uh, maybe <laughs> I should change it, but you know, tough name uh, for cops. But Goldilocks is you find the intervention that's just right. You don't use one size fits all. And so if you're a big time commercial drug dealer in our community, we don't have a lot, uh, but we have some. Uh, I want to send you away for a long period of time. And if you're someone who's just using drugs, not dealing drugs, you're just using, you're not um, harming anyone but yourself and maybe your family, we want to get you effective uh, help for your, your addiction. So what we do is old school cops would arrest you, bring you to jail or run you into the court system. Um, and then at the end of the day, you have a criminal conviction, makes it harder to get a job in housing and you get sent to drug treatment that's not effective. This new program Cops uh, don't send you to jail if they suspect you're a drug offender. They issue you a citation to go to court, but they also give you a notice, a little card that says you might be eligible for DA Hummel's program. Show up on Friday. 
and they can say show up on Friday because you're there every Friday. So they show up. I'm there. There's a drug and alcohol professional there and a defense attorney there. We tell them about the program. If they're interested, they get assessed uh, right then by the drug and alcohol professional. We send them to a primary care doctor and not, not a drug treatment person. I don't know if they need drug treatment. I'm not a doctor. They go to a primary care doctor who provide, who conducts a physical. And then all this person has to do, I say all, it's simple, but it may be big for them. They have to do what their doctor tells them for a year. They may have a physical and the doctor might say, you know, you're one of the healthiest patients I've seen in a year. I don't need to see my healthy patients often come back uh, in six months. Doctor might say, you know, I think you have diabetes. Let's get you help for that. I think you have gout. Let's get you help for that. Uh, you, I think you may have a substance use disorder. Let's get you help for that. I think you may have a you know, mental health issue. Let's get you help for that. That's all confidential. I don't know anything about that. I don't pierce the, the patient doctor privilege. They're, they agree to one thing. If they stop showing up to their doctor, the doctor tells me, and if I hear that, then I put it back in court. But at the end of the year, it's a year-long program. If they participated in their care, the doctor sends me a letter and says my patient participated in their care. They were never charged with a crime. I don't ever put it in, in court. And so we see people are healthier. Uh, they don't get saddled with a conviction, and the recidivism rate is significantly lower. John, how does how does the funding mechanism for that work? I mean, if you're if you're bringing them in and then you're referring them, who's do they pay for those mental health services or the doctor appointments? What what's that look like? Well, this would not have worked uh, if we had not also had uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, that basically gave uh, almost all Oregonians uh, health care if they can't afford it, and so. Here's uh, something that is uh, unfortunate and, 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 and was good for this program. We may want to talk about it at a, in another program, the bad part of it. But we looked historically back a year at everyone we charged with a drug offense because I wanted to see if they would qualify for the Oregon Health Plan. And uh, we found out that over 95% did. And we know people of higher income don't use drugs at a lower rate than people of low income. People use drugs at the same rate across the board, but over 95% of the people we were charging were of low income. That's a concern about policing that I maybe want to talk about later. But for this program, I knew that over 95% of the people would be either uh, on the Oregon Health Plan or eligible for it and we could enroll them. Now, the 5% of the others, most of, many of them might have their own private insurance. And if not, maybe you know one or 2% would be unemployed because they fall in that gap, and so they don't have insurance. But I went to the doctors, uh, to the medical providers who ultimately joined with us, and I said, hey, if I send you 300 patients who are insured, and maybe three who don't have insurance, would you provide you know, a care for the three without insurance? They said, well, sure, because they're getting, you know, 300 patients. Right. So the only issue is whether they had capacity, and they did have capacity. So the doctors bill uh, insurance. Wow, it's incredible. Yeah. Con considering how, uh, how on thin ice Obamacare can be at certain times politically. That's right. And I talked to my colleagues in other states where they did not uh, expand the Affordable Care Act, and they just said, we can't do that here, Hummel. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. The connection between you know, healthcare and criminal justice uh, reform is, is important and often overlooked. Yeah, um, shifting gears a little bit, um, some more current affairs. Um, there was a recent upset at your office when one of your deputy DAs, Jasmine Concoso, accused some of her coworkers of overt racism and sexual harassment. 
Can you give us an update on that investigation? Yeah, I can. Um, as uh, the public may remember, as uh, when Jasmine's attorney told me about that, first I was uh, I was horrified. I, I said, if if that was true, there's no place for that in my office. There's no place for that anywhere. But if that's going on in my office, I won't stand for it. Jasmine's not alleging that I did any of these things, nor that I knew about them. So I immediately, with the county council, we hired a uh, investigator to conduct a full investigation. I, I hate for for your listeners. Uh, um, purposes that um, this is going to be done this week. I think Friday the investigation will be done. I don't know when this is going to air, so uh, I can't give you breaking news now, but um, probably when people are listening to this, um, the uh, the investigation will be done, and I'm going to announce that to the public. And I don't know yet. I don't know what the findings are, so I've always said, I'm going to tell the public what the findings were, good, bad, or you know, in the middle. So st- stay tuned, but it's going to be this week, we got a heads up from the investigator. Um, tomorrow, I'll get the report and I'll announce it Friday. Thank you. Thank you, Beth. Um, oh, go ahead, Aaron. All right. Um, hey, there's been a spike in uh, politically oriented crimes. I mean, all the way up the line. A person in Redmond shoved a Trump supporter. A man in a large pickup truck was... I love it. I never even knew that was a term, rolling coal. Rolling coal. Yeah, it's a true thing. I thought it was just some annoying thing. It always happened on my motorcycle. Coincidence, but I guess it's a thing. Uh, Another man drove through a crowd of protesters. And all of these incidents, you've spoken about the need to start a community conversation about political tensions. And, I mean, you've had some success in bringing these large groups of people together what's your outlook for something like this? Political tensions being a pretty high bar. Yeah, right. I'm just going to just take on, right, the political division in, in our country and, and solve that. Right? But uh, so it, it's as big a lift as you can get. And, and I can't imagine not doing it because I don't know anything that's more important to our community. I'm not going to take on the political tensions in the country. That, that would be too big a lift. But uh, I see, as all of us do, Tensions are ratcheting up, and uh, I can do a part in the criminal justice system to let people know that I'm not going to stand for it on either side, and uh, we are not going to you know, look like other communities where um, it's gotten out of control. Uh, I am going to hold people accountable when they commit uh, crimes of violence or property destruction while upholding people's right to assemble, which I, uh, I support. Um, but beyond that, I, I see an opportunity now with, I mean, I didn't tee this up, I didn't create it, but I have cases now on both sides of the political spectrum that are in the criminal justice system. And I could just process them like any other case, seek to hold the people guilty, do some time in jail or community service, a fine, and we can move on. But, um, but that would be a lost opportunity, I think. I'm in conversations with some of the uh, defense attorneys involved and the victims involved about Maybe we can use these cases as a catalyst to talk about why. Why are we leading with hate? And so I want to know, um, that kid who's rolling coal, again, everyone's presumed innocent in this case. So the kid who's alleged to have rolled coal, you know, if he did that, why did he do it? He didn't know any of those individual people at the corner at the Black Lives Matter protest. So he couldn't have hated any of them individually. Why did he do it? And why do Black Lives Matter protesters, some of them, 
feel um, the way they feel about, you know, white kids in, in, in pickup trucks. And, you know, why does that maybe white kid in the pickup truck feel that he's uh, disrespected? Maybe why does he feel that his culture is under attack? Um, I, I want to know, why does a Trump supporter feel that, you know, they are the, you know, the, um, the kind of the forgotten people in our country? You know, and I, I think I can use these cases, at least in these cases, we can have these conversations. So maybe it'll just be a test. Try it out small on these cases. And if, if, if it's a successful dialogue and if everyone feels listened to and that there is value from it, maybe we go out and start expanding. I'd like to see a community-wide dialogue, but I'm going to start with these cases. Well, starting with these kids, you could look at their Facebook pages and maybe just put them together on Facebook and see what happened. That would get a lot of hits and likes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's... I'm joking, of course. I know, I, I know, but I, I don't... I say we call it out, right? I, I want to yeah. know. Like, I mean, I, I'm, I've come to realize I'm different than most people, so maybe this isn't the way to do it. We're going to have a professional facilitator, and they may say, Hummel, your ideas. We don't... Hummel, get in the back of the room, not in the front of the room. But I like to lean into conflict. Like, I like to say, you know, hey, uh, you, ride, you drive a big truck and roll coal and love Trump and like to you know, say, you know, yell curse words out your window. You know, why do you do it? And you BLM guy, you think you're, you know, holier than Dow and you are in, and you think you have the most just position, but some people say that maybe you should listen more. Like what? just call out the extremes and then, right. then just put it out there. And then maybe they say, no, it's not that way. Yeah. I say stuff on Facebook. I don't mean it. Then you like ratchet it down. I like to start at top and just blow it up and then come down, but we'll get the professionals involved. Don't worry. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's I think it's an interesting thing to facilitate. I mean, national news always will pick up interesting things like um, judges who are ordering certain kinds of creative uh, disciplinary actions. Again, it's better than uh, having to be on their record for yeah. smoking out some folks. So, exactly. um, yeah. Well, we're reaching the end of our time here, John, and I know there's um, far more that we could delve into that your office is working on. Anything in particular you'd like to speak to before our time here is up? Uh, one quick thing. It's a quick hit thing. It's so simple and it costs no money. I was so proud of it. Um, one of my employees uh, came in a few weeks ago and said, why do we look at mug shots? Why are they in the file? I was like, I don't know. I mean, I thought about it for a while. I'm like, I don't know. She's like, well, we look at mug shots before we decide whether to charge someone with a crime. And implicit bias tells us that if someone looks differently than us, we uh, subconsciously might treat them differently. So why should we be looking at the face of somebody who, um, you know, may, may be a different skin color than us, may, may present as being from a different socioeconomic class than us? If there's no value in having it there, uh, only a bad thing could come out of having it there. So she said, why don't we uh, exclude uh, mugshots? from files, unless there's a case specific reason to do it. If it's a fight, you might want to see if there's injuries on someone's face. Okay. So absent a case specific reason to observe a mugshot prior to filing a charge, we don't. It's been removed from the file. That was so simple. It was great. And that would not have happened, but for, for George Floyd's murder and the kind of kick in the pants of uh, me and other uh, criminal justice leaders to dig deeper and look uh, differently. So, um, so that's just one thing. And we need to keep, there are going to be some big hit changes, but I think uh, the bigger impact might be from lots of small changes. 
So I, I was real proud of my staff for uh, identifying that. Well, I hope you have some success with bringing uh, political divisiveness to an end before November, because I have a feeling it's going to be more uh, important than ever around that time. I, I'll be honest with you, I am a little scared about those uh, that period of time. What happens regardless of who wins? I don't think that, I do think people are uh, active, and active means, you know, we're going to get your office involved at, at some point. Yeah, no, that's right. And uh, that's why it's incumbent upon leaders in our country to lead, right? Um, we don't always need you to lead on, you know, what the speed limit is in the community or do we put speed bumps here? It is nice if you lead, but the community can kind of, you know, drive that. But on these divisive issues where people can get killed, right? We need leaders right. to step up, be above the fray and be a leader. And so I'm going to do uh, my darndest to, uh, to be that leader that we need. And I can't do it alone, though. I want every other elected leader in our community to step up to. Great. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate your time. That's the end of this edition of the Ben Don't Break podcast. Thanks for listening. Happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks, John.